Hello and welcome to the Game Devastation Podcast. My name is Stephanie Frost. Today I'm talking with James Petruzzi and Dan Adelman. Uh, you gentlemen work on a game called Chasm. Uh, can you tell me, A, what you guys do, and B, what is the game about? So I'm the game director, um, and I'm mostly focused on um, the design of the game and uh, kind of getting everybody else marching towards the same goal. And uh, Dan is our latest addition to the team, actually, and he's our new business and marketing expert. Yep. Hello. <laughs> he basically was a fantastic introduction uh to down there uh okay so you guys are working on this how big is the team actually before you get into the chasm introduction so i'd say um for the actual development team there's five of us uh including myself um so myself like i said i'm kind of the director of the game slash producer um my partner and co-founder of discord games tim dodd is the lead programmer um, and then we have two artists, um, Glauber Kataki and Dan Fessler. And um, Glauber is the sprite and um, object animator. And Dan Fessler does the uh, background art and um, environment art. And then we have one more uh, person, Jimmy Stevelak, and he's the um, sound designer and musician. Right on. So we're, we're a pretty small team. Like everybody's really has to like pull their weight um, since there's pretty much like one person in charge of each aspect. You know, there's not... There's not a lot of like go between, and um, I'd say we're pretty efficient because of that. You know, I can just like work with everybody directly, and um, it really helps a lot. I think for like a team like ourselves that's completely remote, because um, as you add more people, management gets harder, and like we're just doing this completely over Skype. So, you know, we try to work with what we have and uh, push it to the the limit, I guess. <laughs> so this is fascinating to me because typically games have been developed, you know, in a single space and then those people all come to said space and then make the game uh so you're doing it all remotely what has been the biggest challenge so far for doing something like that i gotta imagine communication uh is a little bit more strained when people aren't in the same room right yeah yeah it's definitely like a little harder to um kind of get ideas across especially when they become more abstract or esoteric you know like you're you're trying to like describe some sort of texture or something you know and it's just like it's really hard to do like when you're not in person and besides that just like kind of the um human interaction element i think like just seeing like people's um uh like the way you know facial expressions and and uh, body movement and stuff like that like i think you get like a lot of nonverbal cues from people when you work with them and um it could be a lot harder if you're talking to somebody on skype uh you know text or even audio um still kind of strained so that's that's definitely tough um and probably the other part is that um I think it's a little bit harder for like everybody to know what everybody else is doing because if you're if you're like in a studio and like you're like walking by somebody's desk you can just stop by talk to them see what they're up to you know when when everybody's just kind of working remote and everybody's like working different hours and um all all that kind of stuff like I'm pretty much the only person I think that knows like what everybody else is doing because I'm I'm the one that's like talking to the programmer every day or the animator and keeping things in sync and stuff so I'd say that's probably one of the harder parts is that, um, you know, like maybe our sound guy will have no idea what the animator has been up to or something just because, you know, it's not normal just to be like chatting with people all day in Skype, you know, like it's, it's definitely a much different dynamic. Um, so we've, we've definitely had to kind of figure out what works for us. And one of the things we actually implemented to combat that is uh, a weekly scrum meeting. So like every Sunday night, 
at um, 9 p.m. Like we all dial in and just go through what we worked on the past week and what we're going to be working on the next week and kind of share and talk about things. And I think that like really helps with the, the team motivation, you know, not seeing each other like all the time. And like it really gives people a feeling of, hey, I can show others what I've been working on and also see like kind of what everybody else has been doing and get a feel for like how this game is coming together. Because I think like I'm the only one with the vantage point that's like, okay, he's programming this, he's doing this art, and I can kind of see in my head when all this, these things come together. But for everybody else, like they don't have the time to be like trying to figure all that out, you know. So no, I, I think it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot different, you know. Absolutely. Now, Dan, how did you get involved with this uh, with this crew? So um, James and I um, started talking. Um, I think it was primarily um, Tyrone Rodriguez introduced us. Right. Yep. I'm trying to remember. Like how it all started. Um, so well, Tyra- I had talked to you back during the Kickstarter briefly when you're still at Nintendo, like a long time oh, before that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I I almost forgot about that. Yep. That, that was like way way back. That was like that yeah, was back in 2013. Yep. Yeah, that was like my old life. So that. <laughs> it's like another uh, lifetime. So yeah, so yeah, it was af- well after that that um, Tyrone Rodriguez, who runs a company called Nicholas, and uh, they did. They've done a bunch of stuff over the years, like Cave Story and Thousand and One Spikes, and very recently um, the new Binding of Isaac, um, the remake, um, Rebirth, I think it's called. Um, and uh, yeah, so he was saying like he, he's friends with James, and he's a friend of mine, and he was like, "Man, you know, Chasm is looking really great. They really need some help with, you know, um, the business side of things because." Uh, um, that's, that's not really James's strong suit. So I think you could really help out there. So, so yeah, so that's how we started talking. I just realized like he gave us like probably the opposite spiel. Cause I think he was like, you guys really need Dan. Like, like, you really need to talk to Dan cause you, you have no marketing skills. And I'm just like, Oh man. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about like, uh, how you got, cause you did indie stuff for Nintendo specifically, right? Yeah. That, so- that was my focus. So how did that come about? It was it was it you just kind of going like, man, this indie thing is really catching on, and we've got to we've got to get Nintendo on that bandwagon, or was it like they had it there and you came into that? How did that work? Yeah, so there there actually was no bandwagon at the time. It was I was really frustrated with how boring games had gotten, and I was I was I kind of um, took it upon myself to start thinking about the content for their new digital distribution system because no one else was doing it. And I had been part of the launch of XBLA on the original Xbox. And so I had a little bit of a background in that. And I was thinking, you know, you know, I've got this opportunity to define, you know, a totally new platform. What do I want it to be? And, and then I was thinking, you know, the Wii has this really weird kind of controller that could, you know, shake things up a little bit. Um, in terms of like new types of gameplay. And so I started off by like talking to smaller developers, like casual game developers, and none of them were interested in doing anything really interesting or different or taking any design risks. Um, and so I was getting a little kind of frustrated with that. And then I started to find some people in the indie scene, which was still, you know, kind of underground at the time i wouldn't say it's like completely underground like not hidden like they're but like um the original indie game summit which is like a a big thing that they do at gdc every year um you know was 
it was a small room with like some folding chairs and like, you know, very few people were there. Um, this was before Braid, before World of Goo, um, before a lot of those kind of um, games kind of put indie games on, you know, on people's radar. And so, yeah, so I, I started working on that and talking with a lot of developers and like trying to encourage them to do something new and cool and interesting and take risks. And they were like, yeah, that's all we do. That's, you know, so glad to hear that there's somebody interested in that stuff. Um, and that's kind of where it started. That was like almost 10 years ago now. So, um, and then after that indie, you know, the whole indie thing became, you know, this, you know, this big boom and, uh, you know, everyone started flooding into it. And so I think I was just really lucky that my timing was right, that I was like thinking about these issues before a lot of other people were, because like if I had tried to like get the same job five years later, like approach Nintendo and say, I want to be the indie guy, you know, you know, there'd be like, you know, get to the back of this line of like a thousand other people who want to do that. So I was just really lucky that I was at Nintendo and nobody knew what to do with this new digital distribution service. And I was like, well, I've got some ideas and and that's kind of how it started. So okay, let's talk about the game. Um, what is uh, what is the game? Uh, what are the platforms? Uh, when are you guys looking to release all that fun stuff? Well, yeah, so it's a um, procedurally generated adventure platformer. Um, pretty much takes a lot of influence from like all the games that we grew up with. Um, I dare to even say it's a love letter to them. You know, like we've got like. A lot of obvious influences from everything from Castlevania to um, Zelda and Mega Man, um, even a lot more than that, I'd say. But those those three are probably like the the trifecta, I think, that have really influenced it the most. And Metroid, of course. But I honestly, I wasn't as big of a Metroid fan as a kid. <laughs> I was like way, way more into like Mega Man and and that kind of stuff. But definitely a huge platformer fan, and I always just wanted to make like the ultimate like kind of deep replayable platformer game and uh that's kind of where the the idea came from was something that was a little bit different every time you played it but still had that kind of like epic adventure hero arc to it you know that you expect from um kind of fantasy and like classic adventure stories so um yeah that's that's pretty much what chasm is in a nutshell i think so uh taking a step back though um just like from a consumer perspective i think what what a player will see is like just in terms of the story is um you start off you're you're a soldier that was called to this town because there's like some mysterious disappearances and you you kind of go down into this the mines where um where the villagers work and have been disappearing into and and you explore those mines and um kind of what james was talking about how it's procedurally generated and all of this stuff um it, it's an interesting mix of like when it's it's a little bit different from when most people talk about procedurally generated worlds. Um, so usually when you think of procedurally generated, you think like there's some different elements that are combined in you know randomized ways. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, and in this case, um, all of the rooms are actually you know hand designed rooms. But the layout of those rooms within, um, you know, within this chasm, um, you know, the mines and, and then other areas that you explore in the game, those are randomized. So you you kind of don't know necessarily which way to go. Um, even if you've played it 100 times, you may encounter the same rooms, but they'll be in, in different orders. Um, and yeah, and so you kind of uh, 
as you're exploring um, this these uh, these mines and and the other areas, you start to uncover this mystery of what's happening in this in this village. So when you're so, talking about the procedural stuff, um, you were saying like replayability was a big deal for you uh, when developing this stuff. So mm-hmm. aside from the room layout, like what what is going to make players want to come back and say, oh man, this I, I got to keep playing. What, what, what is addicting players to this game? Well, we definitely hope, like, even without the procedural generation, I think some games lend more to replays than others. You know, the ones that don't just, like, spill their entire lore and, like, force-feed it, like, directly in your face. You know, so we're definitely taking a little bit more hands-off approach where, like, there'll be a lot of information in the world, but it's up to the player to kind of, like, piece it all together and absorb it. And we're kind of hoping it's going to be deep enough that you're not even really going to get like every single aspect there is to get like from the story and the gameplay and everything from one playthrough. So it's not only just like the the game world changing up, but we're also hoping like that, um, you know, each additional time you play, you're going to be looking for more items. You're going to be like looking to glean more information about the world and why things are the way they are. Um, Find new monsters. You know, there's like a bestiary you'll be able to fill out with like all the different kind of monsters you encounter. So it's gonna be like a lot of things to collect, a lot of things to see. But then we're also like laying that thing on top that okay, so the next time you play it, you're gonna get like all the stuff you had last time, but maybe you're gonna encounter it differently, or maybe you'll even find things you didn't find last time. You know, like maybe the treasure drops will be different, or the mini bosses you fight will be different. You know, like there could be a lot of uh, details that aren't going to be exactly the same. So we kind of want to keep people on their toes and then also kind of like let them get lost in this world because I think that's really what it's all about when it comes down to it. So how do you do Metroidvania procedurally? Because the the key with Metroidvania typically is I want to go to an area. I can't because I need an item that will allow me to go into said area, right? So uh, typically those are very handcrafted experiences uh, Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, I have the candle now so I can see in this area. (laughs) I have the gloves so I can punch through, you know, rocks or whatever. So how do you do that procedurally with uh, a Metroidvania game? Well, that was definitely the single toughest thing we had to face and i mean the truth of it is like when we tackled it there was nothing else really to look at that had done something similar um like a little bit a while after like i had done like a a prototype um i had seen rogue legacy like um they had entered into the um igf i think it was like the 2012 one actually that they they entered into and um i kind of saw what they did but i wasn't sure like from the the clips that they put on there like how they were going to approach it either so it's it was kind of like a really tough thing to figure out, um, and we actually even after like the Kickstarter prototype we did, like we completely reapproached it again because like we still didn't feel like it was where it could be, and like I think that's something like with procedural generation that you're always battling with is like this feeling of like haphazard, um, kind of goofy combinations, you know, like if it doesn't feel like you always want things to feel like they're like natural, you know, or or handmade or or like it. Like, that's the way it should be um, and not just like, oh, that's because, like, something weird happened, you know, with the generator or something like that. So, like, we definitely were pushing to create an experience, like, so high quality with the procedural generation that if you didn't know um, it was procedurally generated ahead of time, like, you wouldn't be able to tell. And that was kind of, like, what we were shooting for. And (laughs) to get there was a lot of work, I think. Um, Like, we tried probably three or four different ways to approach it um, until we finally found the one that we were like, okay, this is it. Like this works and, and just kind of like went with it and have been improving upon that ever since. So it was definitely <laughs> quite, quite a bit, at least a, I'd say a year of work just to like get the procedural generation to the point where I was happy with it personally. And 
felt like it was like somewhere where, you know, I, I thought like, okay, like this doesn't, I, I guess my fear was, is that like, it would be, it wouldn't be like, um, as high quality as we could make it. And people would, you know, make excuses for it. Like, oh, well, you know, it's like that because it's procedurally generated. Like my goal was for like, not that, not to ever <laughs> be said, you know, like I wanted it so good. Like you couldn't tell. And like, you'd just be like, oh yeah, that's chasm. Like, it's got really cool level design. It's <laughs> awesome. So uh, one of the other things I wanted to, to talk to you about as well um, is what what are the critical components, do you think, of making a Metroidvania game? What do you need to make it a successful Metroidvania game? A really interesting world, first and foremost, I think. Like, everybody goes straight to the items, but that's not why people play these games. They play these games, and I learned this <laughs> a lot afterwards, like, so we were originally focused on making it like very challenging. Every room is just like you know another challenge, and um, enemies everywhere, and that kind of stuff. And like we got like a lot of blowback from our um, Kickstarter backers from our initial alpha release. They were just like, "This is like way too hard. It's taking like way too long to go through rooms. Like it makes me not want to backtrack." So we figured out like the very first thing that is like the most important for these kind of games is that. Um, and I hinted on this earlier, like these players like really with these style of games, like they like to get lost in the world because and that's kind of the thing that really separates Metroidvania from other side scrollers is if you think of anything like Mario or like precision platformers or any of that stuff, everything's designed in like to, to these like very small sequences, you know, like Mario, even like you're limited to like two minutes to like run through a stage, you know, like the Metroidvania game is like the exact opposite of that. It's like you have all the time in the world to stand there and stare at things and go left or go back. You know, you can go left or right. Like you can go back forward. You can go back and check things out. And then that's where the items tie back in is that people really want to explore these worlds and then you want them to open up more. So then the items tie in to be like, okay, you got to come back to this at some point so you can keep going that way and explore more that way. But um so first of all, yeah, I think it's like the world has to have a lot of character and then you have to have, you know, really good controls um, to make people interested in moving this character around that interesting world. And then you have to have the power-ups on top of that to make it, like, interesting to go back and forth and, like, have new ways to traverse um, the world and, like, feel like your character is kind of, like, mastering um, the environment that you created for them to explore. Yeah. So I, think, I guess it's kind of like three things, really, then, that all kind of come together and then of course we try to lay like a lot of things on top of that like then you're like layering on all kinds of other smaller mechanics you know the to make every second more interesting so dan uh what's your sort of perspective on how you market something like this because this this is it's a little bit niche in that it's a metroidvania but it's like a procedural metroidvania right there's not it's not like there's a huge market for that so how do you market something like that oh um yeah it's interesting i you know i i actually think there's potentially a really big market for it. Maybe, I think always the challenge is the people who want this game don't know about it yet. So how do we, how do we make sure that they know what it's about and, and the quality of it um, and get the word out to them? So that, that's always the, the challenge pretty much for any game is like, how do you reach the people who, if they only knew about it, would really like the game? Um, and I think one of the ways to do that is... Um, um, showing, you know, it's one of the things that, that really, um, has, uh, chasm has as a strong advantage is that, um, in this modern age of YouTubers and let's plays and, and all the, and Twitch play streamers, um, there are a lot of people out there who watch somebody play a game and then might feel like, oh, that was really cool. 
looks like a great game. I don't need to play it because I've already watched somebody else play it. And with a game like Chasm, um, I think over time people are going to watch someone play Chasm and say, oh, that's really cool, and then watch somebody else play it and see that it's a totally different experience. And then, and you know, and so they'll have a good sense of what it's all about. Um, but really to experience it for themselves, they'll have to play it. So I think that's going to be a big factor. Um, there's also, um, I think, um, you know, one of the, you know, defining characteristics of Chasm is that the layout of the rooms is procedurally generated. Um, but another element of it, as, as James kind of touched on, is that it's, it's not necessarily just straight up Metroidvania, um, though, you know, straight up Metroidvania is, is great in its own right. But I think one of the things that Chasm's doing that I'm not familiar with too many other games that are doing this is that it really integrates um, a lot of different gameplay styles. So you never get to a point where it's just like, oh, I'm in another room where I've got to kill a bunch of enemies and, you know, it, it gets really repetitive because there's always, um, you know, some rooms that have a strong emphasis on platforming and then you'll have another room where there's a puzzle you need to solve and you have to pay attention to the story. So, um, so all of those elements, there's just a ton of variety in the game. Right. So uh, one of the things that um, I found interesting was you guys were a Kickstarter that got launched at it and you did, it looked really successful. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, so how, uh, th and this is fascinating to me. I've run a Kickstarter. I've done a successful one and I've done a not successful one. Uh, and I always find this really interesting to kind of study what the differences are between the two. So what do you think helps? Uh, I mean, like aside from having an awesome product, right? I think that is a uh, critical, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah. How do you run a successful Kickstarter? What what uh, what aspects do you need? Do you think? Well, yeah, I definitely agree that the very first thing you need is a good idea, and then the second thing you need is to be able to execute that idea. <laughs> and if you can somehow get across both of those points to people, then I think you can you'll have a successful Kickstarter. Like, I mean, that's really all it comes down to is like, hey, I have something that you're probably excited about, and I have the experience to back it up and actually make it. Do you want to buy it? And then you've got people like I think the ones that like really struggle is that they're trying to make games that like maybe they like, but there's not really there's not really people excited for it out there, you know, and I had seen something I'm trying to remember. I think it was Derek. You he made like this Venn diagram like overlap and it was like three different things. It was like games I'm able to make games I want to make and like games that people want to play. And it's like all three of those have to overlap to have something that you're excited about making and that there's people excited out there to play you know and a lot of the games that um actually i should say both of the games that we released before chasm i think were the opposite where we were just trying to like make games that we thought would be cool <laughs> you know like we're never like man will people actually like this we just kind of just said yeah like let's just make this thing and then get it out there and um it felt like the whole time like you're just like battling to get people to pay attention to it and chasm was the exact opposite it's like we just put out screenshots and like the art style like just immediately snatched people from the beginning like oh this is something i'm interested in you know and i guess it's kind of hard because it's like that's just something that you can't really tell to anybody you know what i mean like there's no easy way to just like make something successful like that like you really have to i guess find something that is like I, th I think it was perfect timing too. You know, like I, when we launched our Kickstarter, um, there wasn't like a million other Metroidvanias out there. Since we did Chasm, like uh, Time Spinner, Heart Force, Alicia, um, Ghost Song, 
Um, God, there's like three more. I, and I, the, the funny thing is I, I backed all these games. Like, <laughs> but like, uh, so I think like we were right at the forefront where it was like there was people itching for this product and we made the prototype and we showed that, you know, hey, we can get the work done. Like we have the skills. And then beyond that, we studied just the, the Kickstarter school religiously, like going through like the actual stuff that they put together. Then we went through every indie game that was successfully kickstarted and looked at what they did, like the tiers and the descriptions and the, the rewards and everything. I mean, we probably spent like a good month like just working on that thing. And like it was kind of funny because we thought we were going to be done in like a week. And like we had it all together in a week. But like we started sending it to people and getting feedback and then like changing it. And the next thing you know, it's like two weeks and it's like completely different. And then like by the third week, like I think we were like we're finally to the point where – we started like locking things down, but um, I would say just don't settle like with, with what you initially come up with, you know, and just keep studying things. Like I, Kickstarter is definitely like its own ecosystem, you know, and like it's it's its own thing. Like you really have to understand it, just like anything else. If you're going to get into it, like you really have to spend the time and study and, and figure out like okay why why was this one successful and why did this one fail like you said you know like there are reasons why you know i i think like luck is also part of it like i've seen good games that haven't been funded but it like i said that all just comes back to is the audience there to play it you know or to right. back it well so something to me that that always um stuck out that uh really went over well was when uh i decided on the tears for my stuff i i kind of said if i were a consumer and i were paying for this product would this be the same amount as the donation? So, yeah. for example, I did a graphic novel. Uh, the graphic novel, to get it, the tier was, I think, like $35 plus you got two other items and mm-hmm. you got a digital version of it. So I feel like $35 for a graphic novel plus, you know, three other things is worth the consumer's money at that point, right? Like they, yeah, would, yeah. they would pay for that. Well, and if you look at the Kickstarter averages too, they tell you straight up, I think it was like the average donation amount is $25. So, I mean, we use that to our advantage and we made like the number one thing we thought people would back $25. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you right. gotta like look at the information that, that is there and then make it work for you. And I think we also got lucky because at the same time, like I saw the FTL Kickstarter, which I really liked because it was like so minimalistic. And then I saw this guy give a speech at Google um, about uh, choice paralysis and and all that kind of stuff, like presenting too many options to people. And like there were some Kickstarters I saw that like there were so many tiers, like I don't know how people would possibly decide which one to get. You know, like you're talking like 40 tiers or something like and they're all like five dollar increments and have tons of physical stuff that they had to spend all kinds of money producing and shipping and doing all the logistics for that. Like it just becomes a nightmare for them and the backers, you know, so we like try to keep it down to as few possible tiers as we humanly possibly could and made sure that like every time there was a jump up to another tier that it was something there like really good you know it's not just like oh extra character dlc or an extra item like for five more dollars you know like that's just kind of like you know it's just not how we are i guess like we don't really like we're all very old i guess you know <laughs> i mean like if i could i'd probably put this game on a cartridge and like ship it to them personally you know but uh it's just not possible anymore so you know I, I think like we ended up with like six to eight tiers maybe total and like the top the top ones were ones that you know most people wouldn't even ever look at like 500 plus like almost nobody ever looks at so right uh it's just those random whales that you might get yeah exactly. Uh, so uh dan i had a question i was i was talking to james a little bit before the show started and we were talking about um monetary models for selling games so you were just talking about if we could send cartridges to people who would do it um, but uh, looking at like early access 
you know, I'm noticing that, that you guys are on Steam, but you're not selling anything yet. Uh, and you have like a build of the game, like you have an alpha or you, you guys have like some part of it. Um, why not do the early access stuff? And uh, or are you just saying, you know what, we're just going to put it out when it's ready. And that's what we're sticking to. Yeah, so so that was actually something that that was like one of the first conversations that we had when when I started because at the time um, Chasm was available like they were you know the alpha build was going out to backers because that was one of the rewards that backers get is is kind of access to the alpha build and um, and but in addition to that on the humble store I think in um, um, not on Steam per se, but I think on the Humble Store there was like a Humble widget on the uh, Chasm site where you could buy into access to the to the alpha build. And you know, one of my concerns that we discussed, and, and I think James and Tim um, kind of agreed with me, is that you know one one of the biggest problems with um, early access is that there, there's a couple problems, but one of them is that um, you know, your most passionate uh, fans of the game, the ones who are really going to, like, tell all their friends to rush out and get the game, and they're going to be posting Let's Plays of it, and they're going to be, you know, talking about it in the forums and all of those people. All of those people will, you know, eventually move on and, and play another game. And by the time they do, you know, you know your your game will, will still not be out yet. And so you've got these passionate fans who have kind of used up all of their passion, so... Um, so they've kind of burned through it too quickly. And, and also, you know, it's a disservice to them because they're not going to see the final game. Like by the time the final game comes out, you know, they'll be like, man, I have already put. Yeah. Or it's not going to have the same impact. Like no matter how much you improve it, you know, like once you, once you've experienced all this stuff in some way, like, yeah, they'll be like, oh yeah, I see they changed that. That's kind of interesting, but. (laughs) Yeah, they won't be like, you know, I'm going to put another 100 hours into this. So so it's it's kind of like, you know, I see these kickstart, uh, not, uh, these early access games all the time just announcing, you know, they've got update after update. And then one day they just say, and this is version 1.0. And there's no like definition of like why it's 1.0 and why the last one wasn't 1.0. It's just kind of ultimately arbitrary. Um, and I think, you know, there are some games that do benefit from um, early access. And I think those tend to be ones that have a lot of balancing um, requirements, like with, with lots of multiplayer games where you really need a big crowd of people banging on the game to kind of um, tease out the dominant strategies over time. And the more people you've got playing, the better it is. And bugs. <laughs> and bugs, yeah. yeah. Well, Especially well, with multiplayer. That's like extra tough. Yeah, multiplayer bugs certainly. I think single player bugs. Um, you know, they're they're testing companies and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, um, so there are some games that really naturally could use a like an open beta where where people can help tweak it. But I think um, you've got to you know, there's a lot of work in managing the community, right? Setting expectations, kind of. Um, planning that roadmap and if you don't necessarily need it um like if if it won't make your game any better you know i'd say just you know even though it's nice to have some money coming in the door i think you you essentially dilute the impact of your launch and so by the time you you launch there's no 
There's no excitement around it. There's no buzz around it. Nobody's like, oh, man, I've been waiting to play this. It's like, you know, no one's like, man, I played version 0.98, and now (laughs) I can't wait till 1.0 because it's going to, you know. So Well, I kind of feel like Chasm had the perfect blend of it because we got the benefits of early access where we were like, okay, tell us, does this suck or not? (laughs) Here's here's a vertical slice of everything. You know, you get to see, like, the characters and the combat and how the procedural generation works, like that we were going with, um, and all that kind of stuff. And we were able to say, okay, does this work? Like, is this, like, something that, you know, it's it's only the first quarter of the game, um, but is it is it good? And, like, just being able to, like, get the ton of feedback that from people um, telling us, like, everything that could possibly be improved and just be able to work with them and, like, really figure out, like, okay, we made a lot of assumptions that were wrong, but now that we've fixed all this for this part of the game, we can apply that to the rest of the game that they don't have to see, you know, like... Yeah, so we'll see that when it's when it's all done and yeah. stuck with a bow, and, yeah, it's gonna... Yeah, so, yeah, so, exactly. So I think, you know, there's a way to get the benefits of that early access without necessarily... Um, taking on all of the negatives associated with it. Okay, I got you. Uh, So you guys were hinting on this. This is going to be my next question. Uh, I wanted to talk about testing uh, because you guys are are a pretty small dev team. Um, I'm assuming you don't have like a QA department. Is the testing just off of Kickstarter backers and kind of getting their thoughts on things or are you sending it out to people? Yes. Yeah, I mean, like we had, we have like, um, I mean, I've got like a list of like people, you know, probably about 10, 12 people that I I send stuff to to play, you know, just to to check it out and and get me feedback. But I think like really it's, it's kind of like you need, if you want to have real testing, you got to have just a ton of people banging on it. Like there's no other way to, to catch that stuff. Cause I mean, like, Honestly, like, the bugs that you usually run into, like, we catch most of them. I'd say, like, 90%. But the ones that, like, you always run into that that people end up finding are the things that are different than, like, what you did. So it's, like, maybe, like, your process for testing a bug is to, like, run right two screens, go down, kill this enemy, run back. You know what I mean? Like, but somebody else, like, they might do something completely different. Like, they might not go over those two screens. They might pause it and then, like, quit and then load it back up. You know, so there's, like, there's all these possibilities that I don't even think, like, one person could ever achieve you know so i think like that's like the other perfect thing with having the alpha backers like when the time comes um we can put out the game like the finished game early to them right before everybody else have them bang on it and make sure we fix as much as possible because um you know it's like you want you want to have a smooth launch as possible because uh, you don't want to get that reputation for <laughs> having a buggy game and we definitely learned our lesson with take arms like that was a very painful lesson for us launching a multiplayer game that like pretty much failed right out of the gate so, well, it's it's also going to be rough testing procedural, right? Because yes, you're, you're trying to replicate a bug, and it's different yeah, for yeah. everybody. We've, we've had to like come up with like certain tools to help us with that, and different processes. Um, obviously, we have seeds, so people like if they run into, like, we had a uh, error in our dungeon generator, so it would like create like these sections of the map that would like loop back on themselves, <laughs> like so there'd be like basically two rooms on top of each other, you know. And, uh, like, it was just awesome because you're talking, like, millions of possible seeds out there, you know, that you'd be playing. It was awesome being able to get at least a couple people that actually found that and ran into different situations. And we were able to fix it in the code and, you know, move on. So um, I definitely think there's something invaluable about having um, people out there that are passionate enough to be playing it. And, like, I think, like, the alpha that we put out, it was maybe, like, two and a half hours to play it through. And we had people playing it for... 30 plus hours like over and over so and i think that goes back to what dan was saying it was like if we gave them the whole game oh yeah they play it to death but like you know it's like by the time that we're like ready to release like are they still going to be that excited about it i doubt it 
you know, so. Right. So uh, can you guys talk about the difference between developing on Steam and PS4? Because those are those are pretty different platforms, I got to imagine. And uh, the testing process itself has got to be pretty different, right? Yeah, we actually haven't gone through the certification process yet. Like, we're, we're a um, registered Sony developer and publisher, but we haven't actually submitted anything to certification for them yet. So I don't know. I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. Um, yeah, I, I can comment a little about it because I've, uh, I've been... Um, I've been through it once kind of on the sidelines with uh, Axiom Verge um, and you know I wasn't doing any of the heavy lifting that was all Tom uh, the developer of Axiom Verge but the process seemed eerily similar to Nintendo's process so it's like every every step of the way I was like oh yeah that's the way Nintendo did it too and so um, I think one of the bigger challenges is that um, you have to submit the same game to two different regions um, uh, at uh, at Sony. Same way, same thing for Nintendo. So um, once to the um, Americas territory, and then once again to Europe. And so if you know um, Europe finds a bug that um, the U.S. team didn't find, you know the U.S. team might pass the game, but Europe would fail it, and then you have to fix one, and then. You know, if you want to do an update, you you know you should probably go back and fix the other one, and then do the update. and And so, managing two separate SKUs can be uh, a little bit painful. Um, but it's you know there are systems in place to um, to manage that. and And getting through getting uh, updates through Sony was was actually surprisingly really quick. Um, Tom would submit um, a build with you know with some bug fix or something like that, and it would be process and done you know in you know in a day or two um whereas steam um there is no process so once you're approved to release your game on steam um it's pretty much all in your control you you basically set your release date you type in your text for the for the storefront um you upload the game um, and then, you know, then you say go. And, and I believe it just goes live when you tell it to. Um, I say, yeah, I, the I only thing I can think is that I think you have to get like the actual release date you want to release it approved. But yeah, like other than that, like it's pretty much just all on the developer then. Like there's not like if you want to push an update, you just push an update. Like There's no there's nothing standing in your way, you know. Yeah, you have complete control over it, which is really great for um, like the Ursa stuff. You know, we'd see people reporting bugs, we'd fix it and just <laughs> push an update like pretty much immediately. You know, and everybody would have it. So, gotcha. So going back to uh, some more game design kind of stuff, uh, do you have since you you've been doing this now for a while? Do you have any sort of do's and don'ts for side scrollers? Um. Not particularly. I think, like, if you're making a game, uh, the best advice I could give anybody is just, like, get the gameplay down as quickly as possible, like, prototyped, you know? Because um, I think, like, there's a lot of... I guess, like, when you're making a game, like, you're so accustomed to, like, all, like, the 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 polish and things of games when you play them. Like, I think that's, like, r- what really sells the experience. I think a lot of people jump to that too soon. You know, like they're they're more interested in like putting the world together than to actually like focus on making the controls like as tight as possible, like feel right. You know, for how you want your game to play. Like, do you want it like loose and the kind of physics based like the original Mario, or do you want it like more more tight like Mario Three or Super Mario World? You know, like all those games have different feel. Like the jump arcs feel different, the acceleration's different. 
Um, so I think like that's in the combat, you know, especially like in other games, like um, say like Mega Man or something, you know. I think like you kind of have to decide earlier on like how do you want this thing to feel, and then just put all your resources into like getting that working before you do anything else, <laughs> you know, like because without that, like that's basically your foundation, you know. After that comes like the world design and like how how you frame that and um, like we. Well, actually, uh, like thinking back, we really haven't changed much of the player code at all. Even from like the original Kickstarter prototype, we did like once, like I tweaked it a little bit after we did the Kickstarter, but it's almost the same identical code. Like the only thing we changed that we had a lot of um, back and forth with was the procedural generation for the the world. But like I think it's kind of like you have to figure out, you know, okay, what's the most important aspect of my game? A platformer is moving, you know, so like that should be the the very first thing you put as much time as possible into to have it feeling as good as you can get it, you know. No, I got you. Uh, so would you say that movement is the single most important thing when you start out? Yeah, I'd say so. I guess it's kind of tough. You know, it's like if, you're, if your game is built around like a gimmick or a concept, then that's what you should be doing first. You know, and it's like whatever, whatever it is that the player is going to be doing the most is what you should do first. Because I guess basically what I was getting at is that you want to focus on finding the fun as like soon as possible. And if you can't find it, then just scrap it and try something else. You know, like... Um, a lot of times, like especially with our earlier games, you get into this mindset of just trying to find like unique mechanics and then like making them work. You know, like oh, this has got to be interesting. I got to make this work, and like you get so focused on that, or you go the opposite way and you get so focused on everything else that you forget to like make a competent core mechanic, and like you're putting the rest of the game together, and then there's like nothing to hold it together. You know, like nothing that like really makes the game fun or interesting. So um, yeah, that's definitely my number one piece of advice is just find the fun first and don't worry about the graphics. Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about anything. Like go back and like play like the games that inspired you. Like they're all probably really simple, (laughs) you know, unless you grew up in like maybe the N64 era, but otherwise it's, it's all pretty limited. Like if you look at any of the Nintendo games, there's probably like, especially like the platformers, there's probably five moves tops. You know, you could probably move left and right, jump duck and maybe shoot fireballs or something like that's that's the stuff that you need to to worry about first, you know. So uh, another question I had for you because this is a, a game that's kind of uh, I, I don't want to say open worldy, but it kind of is, right? So you can go yeah, around yeah. and do it and do it whatever you want. How do you balance for stuff like XP and gold and progression and things like that? What what is the right amount of progression and how do you how do you find that? Yeah, that's something that we're kind of still worried about for the full game. I mean, not worried, like, can we do it? But more just like, oh, God, <laughs> like, that's going to be a hurdle. Because, you know, we definitely put a lot of work into getting the, the alpha balanced right that we put out for our backers to play. Um, and everybody really seemed happy with, with how we went about it for that. So, you know, we're just hoping it scales up for a full game. I, I guess it, it's tough, you know, especially for something um, open world, like you're saying. Like, we don't want enemies to scale with the player. Like, you know, so we appear in an area, your butt kick come back later to be able to kick their butts you know like that's just how these games should feel um so yeah it's kind of it's definitely like one of those things where like i guess like when you're making the enemies you're not really concerned about how tough they are in particular because you can always make them tougher later you know like you can make their actions faster you can give them more hit points you can give them more moves and all that so i guess it's kind of like one of those things where you just like kind of put it put it together as well as you can and then you go like go back at the end and kind of like smooth it all out and like make sure that, okay, when I get to this area, like, I need to be around this level. And I don't really think there's any easy way to, to go about it other than just have to ask, like, a ton of people, like, checkpoint them, you know? Like, okay, when you got two hours into the game, where were you? Or, like, when you walked into this area, like, what level was your character? What what were your stats? You know, like, 
what equipment did you have? I think like maybe that's the only way to like really do it, but it gets even more complicated with a game like ours where like even like the equipment you can get can be slightly different. So um, you know, when somebody gets to a certain spot in the game, they might be using a two handed sword, they might be using a whip if they found it, they might be using a knife. Like you don't know. Like so it's it's kinda tough, like, you know, to to have all these variables out there and then to be able to like kinda like corral them up and like make it all work, you know. So it's definitely something that like we didn't really give credit for like being a lot of work but it is you know like really like smoothing things out and making sure that the player is consistently challenged but not overly so that they get turned off you know because it's 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 kind of like double-edged like you got to find like that path right in between because people get bored if it's too easy and then they'll get frustrated if it's too hard so you kind of always have to walk this line where it's like they're they're challenged but not overly so <laughs> like they, they feel like they could push on if they had to you know so i was going to ask a question about uh how you balance difficulty in this but um this might actually be uh answered in the next question i was going to ask which is uh what are your favorite side scrollers oh man so personally i would say um of course the original super mario brothers is definitely up there uh mega man 2 Symphony of the Night, of course, I'd have to bring that one up. Super Metroid. A lot of the classics, I guess. You know, like, I think, like, most of those games were probably my favorite growing up, especially uh, Mega Man 2 and um, Castlevania. <laughs> you know, the funny thing with Castlevania is I only had the second one as a kid, which is the one everybody hates. It's which, the brutal one, yeah. That's I know, I know, which one. may have actually in- indirectly influenced me, you know, for this whole kind of, like, open-world idea, like, that I've been thinking about forever, like... Because, um, you know, that was kind of before anything, really. Before, I guess it was after Metroid, but, you know, it was definitely like the first non... It's close in that development. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you know just... what's funny? I, and I, I shit you not. Um, <laughs> I'm always worried, like, uh, you know, I just had the kid. Uh, for everybody that's, that's listening, I just had a child. I was actually supposed to interview these guys, and then I rudely had a child. Um, so, um, when, every night that I go to sleep, the the first thing that I think is... This is a terrible night to have a curse because <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm always worried about like the kiddo in, in some sort of way like are they breathing or is the is this too tight or is it, you know I'm always worried about that so that's the first yeah, thing yeah, that pops when, in my when head. When you wake up, do you say ah the morning sun has vanquished the evil? <laughs> <laughs> Effectively, I do. Yes. Uh, and, like it, everything has to stop around you for like 20 seconds and be unbearably annoying. <laughs> it was uh yeah that was that what's funny is that was the first castlevania that i played as well i eventually got to the the first castlevania and was like oh this feels a lot better but um yeah, that's like, oh, crap, this is a lot different so uh, okay so th- then it seems like a lot of the old school ones and also this is another uh, this is a hot button issue i get into many arg- an argument about um my favorite nes zelda is actually the second one uh and I noticed that there were a couple of things in Chasm that seemed kind of like Adventures of Link. Did you play that game at all or, and or like it or hate it? You know, I actually hated it as a kid. I never owned it. My my friend had it, and I went over to his house and played it a couple times. And I was just like, this isn't Zelda, you know, because I was like mega fan of the, the very first one. Like, totally obsessed with it. I played it like all the time. I would take like the, I don't know if you remember, but it like came with like all these manuals and stuff. Cause the game was so complicated. There was like a fold out map. There was like a 50 page instruction book that had like all the enemy descriptions and all that in it. And like, I would just take those to school with me, like everywhere, like, like reading like the Zelda manual. Um, but I think like that, that's what really, I always go back to that first Zelda because, um, that was like the first game that actually made me, and this is probably why I didn't feel the same way about the second one, but it was it was the first one that made me feel like there 
that the world kind of existed without me. You know, like because there was so much detail in that game, um, unlike games before it. And there was like so many secrets and like all this stuff like that. That sense of mystery like kind of always stuck with me. So that was like one of the things that definitely influenced um, Chasm largely, and just like the kind of tone of the game and the atmosphere is something that I've always been trying to recreate. Is is that one from the first? Now the second one, I have played it. Um, since but i haven't made it that far actually so it was actually my goal to pick it up on nes and and kind of like actually get through the whole game but so yeah i i haven't like i've watched playthroughs of it so i know like what's in a lot of it but i haven't necessarily played through the whole game by myself yet and I, my... i've heard especially from the angry video game nerd like how hard the end of the game is so i wasn't really looking forward to it <laughs> it's it is what so i i beat that game when i was eight and it Holy is one crap. of yeah, it is one of my gaming achievements that I will tout. Uh, and if if I played it now, I would get wrecked. Like it would take me forever to get to the end. Yeah, yeah, you really got to practice these games to like get down every single pixel of movement. Like I was playing uh, Ninja Gaiden a couple weeks ago, the first one, and it's just Oof, like that's another brutal one. Yeah, I just I just forgot like how how brutal they are. You know, I, th- I think that is probably the best word. And actually, that game is pretty easy on you because, like, when you restart, it doesn't push you that far back. Like, you have unlimited continues and all that. But, yeah, that's the, the, the difficulty factor is also something that kind of stuck with us, you know, as kind of classic gamers. We expect games to challenge you um, both mentally and, um, you know, kind of physically. Like, can you push these buttons fast enough? Can you respond fast enough to, like, what's happening? You know, like, there's a certain... There's a certain level of satisfaction, I think, that like modern games are missing because they try to cater so much to people and make sure that they can. It's a, it's like this whole modern cinematic thing, you know, where it's become like, oh, games are like a movie. You just sit back and experience it. Like to to us, that's not what like games are. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, you sit back and you get lost in it, but you should also be like thinking. You should be challenged. You should be like waking up in the middle of the night being like, oh, I got to beat that. Like, you know, like you got to bring back that like obsession. And I think like dark souls really capitalized on that in a big way. and kind of brought that back. Yeah. Are you guys playing bloodborne right now? Cause I am addicted to that game right now. <laughs> I actually haven't played it yet. I'm like dying to play it. It's but... uh, it's really good. Literally my kid was being born. I had to take a break to play bloodborne. <laughs> it's, it's, it is that good. I highly recommend it. I've heard uh, that. It, no, it's great. Um, so here's another question for you guys. Uh, particularly about getting started and especially as an indie and Dana, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. Um, what advice do you have for people that are looking to get into making games? Um, where do you start? Um, and then once you start actually developing a product, how do you get it out there and in as many people's hands as possible? So, so one of the things I often tell people is don't do it unless you absolutely feel you have to. Because um, a lot of people like will hear the the success stories coming out of the indie scene. They'll be like, "Oh, I could totally do that." Like, yeah, there's I a huge confirmation to... bias. Like, yeah, exactly. And and they're like, "Oh, I could be, you know, you know, I could be super rich. I could be Notch and get my eighty million dollar house." And you know, the fact is that you know, only one person has ever been Notch, and that's Notch. And but even the other successes, there there are there are a handful of successes, you know, probably a good, you know, probably 20, 30 people, maybe more, 50 who have done really well. And there are thousands of people who have not done well. And so, so I would say, you know, first, first of all, it should be your, your passion and, you know, you got to approach it from the standpoint of like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily mind 
not making a lot of money because this is this is what I want to do. As long as I can like somehow get by and survive, you know, if you're if you're doing well, you know, if you if your expectations are I can you know just want to get by and survive, you'll probably have an okay chance at that. Um, but there, you know, again, there are a lot of people who don't. So I want to, you know, kind of, I always try to put as many warnings in front of people um, as possible just to kind of offset all of the, you know, all of the great stories that they hear um, and kind of temper them with some reality. Um, so that said, um, you know, some of the things that people can do if they're like, they, you know, they want to do it, but, you know, it's a lot of risk. Um, you basically have no income or insurance or, or anything, and you've got to spend a lot of time raising money. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I recommend to people if they can do it is start off by doing it on the side, like doing it as, um, a hobby, especially for, for people who have never made a game, um, either get a get a game at a, or sorry, get a job at a game studio where you can learn kind of learn the craft and get paid while doing it or you know kind of teach yourself and make lots of prototypes and make lots of mistakes but while <clears throat> while you're earning a paycheck doing something else so you, all of your eggs aren't in one basket um and then once you get to the point where you know how to make a game you're pretty competent you know you know that you can make a a, a quality game and you really feel like it has to be a full-time thing. It's not like the kind of thing you could just do part-time and do it right. Um, you know, then, then I think, you know, kind of what James has done of like putting a really talented team together. That's all working towards the same goal. Um, you know, <clears throat> um, having, um, good access to funding, um, is also super critical because, uh, games always take longer and cost more than um, than you expect. Even if you expect it to to take longer and cost more than you expected, it's still going to cost more. And it gets harder uh, the older you get. Yeah, and and so yeah, so people like James is younger than me, but um, you know, not you know, crazy significantly like some people in the industry. And yeah, I, I wonder like you know, it, it becomes harder as you get older, and you've got like a mortgage to pay, and you've got a wife at home, and maybe kids. Um, you know, the risk factor goes up. So so whatever you can do to offset that risk by diversifying it across, you know, multiple stakeholders. Um, you know, again, if, if, you're, if your goal is getting rich, then you might not want to share that, you know, that big payday at the end. But if your goal is, I just really want to make games for a living and make the games I want to make, um, you know, if you can make a quality product, you know, hopefully you'll you'll do well enough that you'll be able to, continue doing that indefinitely and that that i think is the goal that everyone should aspire to and if you can get more than that where you're like i don't have to do anything and i can still live comfortably the rest of my life you know that's that's always nice gravy if that's you know what you ultimately want to do but for the vast majority if you can just um keep yourself going by um you know um offsetting some of the risk diversifying that across you know multiple people everyone does well um, and then everyone can keep coming back to make more games. That's, that's great. And, you know, and also one other thing that once you are kind of making your game, um, you know, what, what you really need to focus on is, um, you know, giving your game the best shot that it can have. So, um, 
and and a lot of times I, I mention about you know um, the importance of doing marketing for the game and um, and that's always easier said than done especially um, for teams that don't have much of a, a marketing budget don't have you know much budget to work with at all um, so how do you you know you know but it, it takes a lot of time of like getting the word out to people you know talking to people um, you know attending shows. Um, which always seems like a big distraction, but it's you know something that the more you can, you know, be in um, in people's mind and and um, and and having being top of mind for people so that they remember about your game when it finally launches, the better your your chances of success success are going to be. Gotcha. Um, so this is a very generic. Uh, if you guys were on a video game panel question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I find it interesting. <laughs> uh, but where do you guys see games going in the next 10 years? Oh, mm. man. Uh, well, I think everybody's guessing VR is going to be huge. You know, that's probably going to be... I'm not. You don't I, think so? Well, I'm not why, why do you think I, that? It, uh, you know, it's funny. We were we were also talking prior to you coming on about the uh, the HoloLens thing. I don't know if you checked out any of that, that Microsoft stuff that was coming out from their uh, conference lately uh you don't I think did. that's going to be big i i think it's going to be niche i i think it's going to be um something that um i think it's going to be more of something that large companies and research facilities are going to use i think the enter the entertainment applications are going to have to be really short and bite-sized and and those kind of because it's just not going to be comfortable enough to. Do you think it's the next that. motion control? <laughs> What's that? The next motion control? <laughs> it, it could be. Yeah, uh, I was, was going to ask you. You worked at Nintendo, so you got the Virtual Boy and you got the motion controls, probably <laughs> yes, kind of wearing on you. Twice by it. So. It's like you, if you just combine <laughs> those, you have the ultimate game machine. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. But you know, like you know. I just imagine, like, I remember, and I wasn't working at Nintendo at the time when Virtual Boy came out, but, you know, I remember when it was in stores, and I was just, I tried it, and I, it was, like, the first video game system I didn't buy, and, because I sat down at the store, and I, and I tried it, and it was cool, but I was, like, so, the, how do I do this? was novel. That was kind of cool. That? The, the depth perception, like, having, like, like, if you played Wario, there was, like, a, a far plane and, like, a near plane. Oh, like, yeah. It was, it was definitely. But it was all red. Like, nobody <laughs> wanted to buy that. But it wasn't even the color to me. It was more like I was think, thinking, like, so I'm going to have to sit at a table and, and play games. Like, I sit, you know, when I play games, I'm, like, half lying down, half, like, you know, just all muscles completely relaxed. I'm just, like, a total <laughs> slob. Like, and I have to sit upright to play this? Like, no, I'm not sitting upright for anything. So, I will so not correct means, my posture for this. Exactly. <laughs> How dare you try to do that? Um, so, you know, so, and I've, I've tried, um, I've tried Oculus 1. I haven't tried Oculus 2, but I've tried the Valve demo. Um, and I'm actually going to be trying, they've got a, a new demo, and I'm going to be trying that next week. And the Valve demo, you know, was really amazing. It was it was one of those things like, you know, you you don't forget about. Like, you keep replaying it in your mind. So I'm, I'm totally on board with how cool the technology is. So I totally get that. Um, but on the other hand, I was thinking even if they make it, you know, they would have to make it basically as compact as 
a pair of sunglasses. And even then, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be one of those things that um, it will be useful in the workplace for certain work applications, like researchers, certainly. Um, and then I think maybe like at big arcades, like where, you know, bringing the arcades back where you can have these, you know, try this one really cool experience that lasts, you know, two minutes and it costs $5. And everyone's like, yeah, I'll try that for $5. And it's a totally worthwhile experience. But, you know, anything longer than two minutes, and I think you'll get fatigue and you'll be like, you know, I'm done. This was a great experience, but I get it. And now I just want to, you know, kind of, you know, fall apart in my chair again and, and just kind of relax again and, and not be, you know, kind of so active in, in playing that. So that's, that's my take on it, but I know yeah, a lot. It's kind of other... weird. Like, especially Nintendo, they were trying to push like this whole physicality into gaming. Like, Oh, you, you move your arms and that's how the character moves. But it's just like, okay, I guess it's cool. Like you're saying for certain applications, but everybody always ends up going back to the D pad and the buttons and, you know, cause it's the most efficient way. It's also been like that for you know thirty years. You know, I think yeah, it's just yeah, it's mean, ingrained in your in your head. Like this is how you play a game. Um, yeah, I, there was a I, I was talking to one of the guys at Robot Entertainment. They're the guys that did Orcs Must Die and stuff, and he was saying the same thing. He he basically said like I, I don't think games are you're still going to play it at your PC or at your video game console. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think you're going to see a huge leap like that until like we literally have like neural implants and you no longer need your hands to play a game. Like you have 100% control of whatever just by using your brain and then Dan can happily lay on his couch and play <laughs> and play virtual boy <laughs> emulators. <laughs> well, see, I would I would love to to play a game like Skyrim or I would love to play a game that's massive and I get lost in it and I have those things but uh, I think the problem is is having those those goggles on your head for a long period of time is probably going to weigh you down a bit, and it's also like the cost is too much right now. You know, people aren't going to pay all that much money for a peripheral, um, and you really have to have an, a gaming experience that matches the one to one. If I'm playing uh, any, I mean, name any Bloodborne, right? If I'm playing Bloodborne, uh, the controls on it are very precise and very accurate, and I feel happy with how things are going because I can control them and I know how it works. And I feel like when you add in these new peripherals, you, you sort of lose that. Um, and I, I mean, yeah. So I, what I'm saying is I agree with you guys. Yeah. Uh, well, I think but, there's a lot of modern gamers out there that don't even really fully understand like really good controls. You know, like a lot of people only play first person shooters that have auto correction aiming and like, you know, all these like enhancements to like make it even easier to play. Like, there's something to be said for like the feedback loop that occurs, you know, like when you're viewing an image on a screen and you're like, um, you know, correcting your character and like you have like these extreme challenges and like very slim margins of error, you know, like it kind of pushes it to a whole whole other level. And I think like motion controls just kind of threw all that out the window. So like, oh, no, no, don't worry about the precision. Worry about, you know, mimicking like what the real action is. You know, it's like it's like, yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, kind of like Dan said, it's it's almost like a specific application like you know that you might you you only go play paintball at a place that has paintball you know like it's it's just kind of a completely separate thing yeah agree so personally personally i'm hoping that like i don't know maybe someday games are going to branch you know and you've got like new new video games and then the classic games that use d-pads or whatever you know what i mean like i'm sure that'll happen eventually in 200 years people aren't going to still be using game pads to play games you know 
Like, like I was saying, I think by then everybody will be just be playing the thing in their head. They'll look like they're just sitting there staring at the wall, but <laughs> in their head, like they're like living in a virtual world, doing everything they've ever wanted to do. Um, and until we get to that point, I think we're just going to be kind of stuck with game pads because that's the next best thing, you know. Agreed. Uh, all right. So, gentlemen, we've been chatting for about an hour. Uh, so I think we're, we're going to wrap it up here really quick, but, um, what did you want to plug aside from chasm? Is there anything else that you're like, man, I got to talk about this. Axiom Verge PC release coming up. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I didn't want to steal your, you know, too much time on the podcast talking about that, but yeah. Um, so I'm working on two games right now. Chasm's one, Axiom Verge is the other and, um, Axiom Verge launched on PS4, on March 31st, and the Steam release is coming up on May 14th. So, um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that because like there are so many people out there who are saying like, oh man, I really want to play this game, but I don't have a PS4. And now they, you know, now they'll be able to play it. So that's going to be really cool. Well, very cool, uh, gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Uh, if you would like to check out more podcasts like this, you can check me out on uh, Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash Stephen Frost. Or check out iTunes, Game Devastation, or Podbeam. We're all over the place. Uh, gentlemen, once again, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you having you on the show. And everybody else, adios. <laughs>